This is the Monday, October 31st, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And as you can tell from my terrible Boris Karloff impression, this is our Halloween episode. So I'm picturing our time machine looking not like a DeLorean from Back to the Future, but like Herman Munster's car, which they had all tricked out with cobwebs and various bits of spooky flair. Yes, I hear those of you screaming at the radio. The Munsters... They're just a bunch of Adam's Family ripoffs. And to that, I paraphrase the wise words of Rebecca Howe, Kirstie Alley's character from Cheers. Surely there's enough room in this audience for those who like the Munsters and those who like the Adams Family. This week, we'll be talking about books that would fit neatly on the nightstand of either Morticia Adams or Lily Munster. Yes, it's a twofer with author Kathleen Shanahan Macca, who brings us Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries, and Ghosts of Galveston. This is one of the oldest cities in Texas, and that means Galveston has suffered its share of tragedies, a lot of them. Hurricanes, yellow fever, fires, and a major Civil War battle. Those who didn't survive started to fill this cemetery in 1839. Kathleen has spent 40 years researching cemeteries and genealogies of the past, and she's a member of the Texas chapter for the Association of Gravestone Studies, as well as the Friends of Galveston Cemetery Group. You can visit her at KathleenMacca.com, that's Kathleen with a K-M-A-C-A, or follow her at Author Macca on Twitter, and like her Facebook page, Author Kathleen Shanahan Macca, which you'll certainly want to do if you enjoy old photographs as much as I do. Okay, now that we've dug our own graves, so to speak, let's pile into the hearse for a road trip to the island of Galveston on the lip of the Gulf of Mexico. I'm joined on the line from Houston by Kathleen Macca, author of both Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries and Ghosts of Galveston. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show. Well, thank you for calling. I appreciate it. We've talked a long time about a lot of historic things, a lot of gravestones, pictures have gone back and forth on our Twitter accounts. But the first question, I think, when someone does look at that Twitter account or at your Facebook page is, you don't look like sort of a goth somebody might picture or you're, you know, you're not one of those Adams family people, you know, extras there. You're not Morticia. You have a bright, smiling photograph. You're a happy person. You're enthusiastic about these stories. You're not death obsessed or a nihilist. So that all said, tell the listeners you've spent 
40 years researching these topics. You have some great stories about times with your grandfather that sort of spurred you. And now you've produced not one, but two books on Galveston's dead and undead. So tell us this journey of yours. <laughs> well, I started doing genealogy a little over 40 years ago. And so the time that I spend in the cemetery goes hand in hand with that interest. And the hobby actually started with family visits to country cemeteries. And my grandfather would walk me up and down the rows and tell me stories about the people who were resting there, what they were like, what their jobs were, their personalities. So I realized early on that it was their stories that I was interested in and that the stones might have names and dates, but there was so much more there. The cemeteries can be more fascinating and enlightening than a lot of history books that you pick up as well as, you know, a place to find beautiful sculptures. But it's strange that it sounds to spend a lot of my time in cemeteries. I don't think of them as places of death. I think of them more as places to remember lives and find out more about those lives. So I don't think of them as spooky places like most people do. It seems like an interesting place for a grandfather to take a granddaughter too. How did he start that up? Is just something he was always interested in? No, it wasn't. He had really not much interest in cemeteries at all. But in the old days, especially you know out in the country, as a family, you would go and visit and decorate the graves and clean up the graves on different days like you know Memorial Day or right before the holidays. You would go up and clean the family graves and you'd decorate them. And we had a series of little country cemeteries that we would visit when we would go to Oklahoma. And my grandfather, or the man I knew as my grandfather, was really my step-grandfather. So he was not related to any of these people that we would visit, but he had been on the streets as an orphan from the time he was about five years old. So he knew everybody in town. You know, in the country cemeteries, they don't have the maintenance like the eternal care like they do in the cities now. So you would pull weeds and trim around the stones and, you know, dust off the stones and then maybe decorate them with flowers. So when my grandmother would want her alone time with the relatives after the graves were cleaned, he would walk me up and down the rows and say, oh, that was Mrs. Miller and she made the best biscuits in town and she would always leave a warm one wrapped up in a napkin on her back step for me for breakfast. And that was old man Sawyer and he ran the donkey stable and he'd let me sleep in the hayloft and exchange for cleaning out the stalls in the morning. So I learned early on that they were real people and places and stories and not just stones. So that's what kind of spurred my interest in cemeteries and I've never gotten over it. Oh, so you were visiting. It was part of your visiting. I see. Yeah. I was picturing you at home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just the ones I have in my yard. <laughs> <laughs> Two books, again, Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries and also The Ghosts of Galveston, The Oleander City, which already sounds like it has some very dramatic Gothic moments. You're thinking of heavy weather. You're thinking of an Anne Rice novel kind of thing. <laughs> you have a lot of those great pictures in there, and the Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries comes under the headline of Arcadia Publishing's Images of America series, those sepia-toned books people may see from their hometown. And I know for myself, having grown up and being of a certain age, if you see a book with your town in it, it's still very exciting. Mm -hmm. Just like it, we didn't have the internet, right? So if somebody was talking about your town or even your little corner of the state, it's sort of a charge. So I wondered if they approached you or did you pitch them the idea? I know you have many, many great pictures. 
Thank you. I actually approached them. I was enthusiastic about sharing a little bit of Galveston's history that wasn't as widely known, and there weren't any books out on the cemeteries. There's a grouping of cemeteries right on the main boulevard. There are seven cemeteries together. It just looks like one large one. And I had spent a lot of time there doing research, and I was kind of shocked that there wasn't a book out about it because I had so many people ask about it, and tourists always stop by there. So just kind of on a, I don't know, a whim or whatever, I approached Arcadia thinking, well, I'll learn when they turn me down, I'll figure out why they turn me down and I'll do better with the next company. But they absolutely were enthusiastic from day one and it was just, you know, sound the starting gun and go. So that was very lucky. Then how did the second book, how did Ghosts of Galveston come to being? That was kind of an outcropping um, of the cemetery book. A lot of people associate cemeteries with being spooky places, which, as I said, I don't necessarily. But when people would find out I was doing research about the cemeteries, they would say, oh, are you coming up with any good ghost stories? And then they started asking me to start collecting ghost stories of Galveston, which anybody that spent any time in Galveston has heard some of them because there are so many. Um, But when I talked to the publisher just in passing on it, they said, oh, yes, yes, we want a Galveston ghost story book. So that's what I did as my next project. As for the cemeteries themselves in Galveston, you said there's only one ghost story that's actually there. I guess it makes sense. Ghosts don't want any more to be in the cemetery than we do a lot of the time. But (laughs) there's one story, and right from the name, it's fun, Nicaragua Smith. So tell us that story. Oh, he was quite a scoundrel. He was a burglar and a a pretty rough character that had come into town. Nobody really knows where he was from. He just kind of showed up right before the Civil War and started causing havoc. And he ended up joining the Confederate troops in Galveston because he thought it was a good way to make quick money and realized really fast he didn't like that at all because you actually had to work for it. So he escaped and went right into the Union lines and they said either join us or you're under arrest. So he joined the Union troops. Then he got recaptured coming back into Galveston, just kind of as a strange series of coincidences that's covered in the book. But he was sentenced to death by a firing squad and they took him out into the plane that was just beyond where the old city cemetery was on a buckboard and stood him up on his coffin on the wagon and asked him if he had any last words. And he said some expletives that even the newspaper wouldn't repeat at the time. Can you imagine now they would have said it word for word, (laughs) but I had found an old letter from a soldier that had attended. So I knew what he said, but it was basically something to do with his backside and (laughs) what he would want facing toward Galveston after he left. But he was shot and dropped under the coffin and buried pretty much where he fell, which is now covered by one of those cemeteries. Back then it was a field, but now it's a cemetery. So he's in an unmarked grave, and it's said that he comes back on the anniversary of his death, which is January 3rd, and yells the expletives at passersby. Well, I guess if he's near a highway, maybe, you know, no one will notice. It's not that spooky. But (laughs) if you're there in the middle of the night and suddenly you're who, Mr. Smith? The cemetery also has stories of the people that are there. It's like an obituary. It's about life, really. It's not about death. It's about the life that's been lived. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's one story you have here that if you were walking through one of the cemeteries and you saw, sometimes you see a little picture, you see a missing picture. I saw that in one of the videos you have on YouTube and interview you did and that photo is gone Mm -hmm. and you might wonder what was there or it's so worn that you can't even read the words. There's one gravestone that always has Mardi Gras beads on it. So if you're walking through, these are the kind of things you'll find in the book. And that's just one story that's very touching that people still remember you. And I think that when we're all six feet under or however we go or wherever we end up, it is nice to be remembered. These are lives. And tell I want you to tell us just that one story or if you have another favorite one of why people care for certain graves certain ways and what stories you love to just draw out when you're walking somebody through kind of wonders why am I here? Um, usually when somebody asks me to show them a grave, I ask them what type of things they're interested in because if it's somebody that is very interested in, in history per se, there are a lot of, there are veterans from every war from before statehood in the cemetery. It's pretty amazing. But there are some especially touching ones. Edward Lee, who graduated from the Naval Academy in Annapolis, had joined the Union troops, but his father was part of the Confederacy. And they actually ended up fighting against each other in the Battle of Galveston. The younger Lee was on the USS Harriet Lane, which was captured, and he had been shot, and he ended up dying in his father's arms. And the entire town shut down in mourning. The fighting stopped. They were both Masons, as was General Wainwright, who was killed in the battle. And all of the Masons from the Union and the Confederacy joined together to have a joint funeral for all of the men lost in the battle. And they were paraded through town and buried in the cemetery. So it's a really touching moment of the Confederacy that even members of the same family were fighting against each other, were lost, but the Confederate and Union soldiers were buried side by side by their comrades and family. It was, it's just really touching. So it's just a very, that one in particular is just a very small marker. It's maybe 12 inches high and has a little anchor on top of it. And on the bottom it says, my father is here because those were his last words. But you would pass by it and not think anything until you really know the stories behind it. And I think that's what draws people in. Some of them are very ornate, especially for the Civil War. I've seen some of those on your Twitter and on your Facebook accounts. And it draws you, but you might not know any more than what's printed there. And how much can you really put on the stone? How did the dead that you cover in Galveston's Broadway cemeteries first come to rest there? And And what are the consequences or what are the challenges in creating a cemetery somewhere where it's an island? So there's not a lot of space. Also, the weather, it's humid. There's hurricanes that sweep through. How did it all come together right here in this place? Well, being buried on an island is definitely a different game. Nobody's buried six feet under or they'd be in water. But in the earlier days of Galveston, before there was a city of Galveston and just after the city was established on the island, people were buried out in the sand dunes where the Indians had buried their dead. And as you can imagine, with the the nature of sand dunes shifting and things, that didn't work out too well. You know, Aunt Myrtle would be exposed or the wood plank that you had over her grave would blow away. It wasn't really working too well. And they had a series of yellow fever epidemics in the 1830s. And in 1839 alone, they lost 250 people, which at the time was a big chunk of the population. So in 1839, the city established the first 
city cemetery, and that's part of the Broadway complex. So that's how the cemetery system started. At that point, it was a respectable distance from town and everything. But of course, now it's in the middle of the city by virtue of the nature of the city's growing out. How do people find you? If somebody's there, somebody's going, this is a vacation spot, you have some great historic homes. How has that changed over the years? Um, My car is recognized by a lot of people. It's pretty (laughs) funny. It's like, oh, look, the white car's there. Kathleen's there. I'll swing in and ask her a question. It's not a hearse? I I don't. (laughs) It's just, it should be, right? (laughs) I'd have more hauling room for things. Um, I don't do tours of the cemetery. There are people that do do tours of the cemetery, but I'm there quite a lot. I'm either helping with gravestone cleaning or doing research about the residents there or trying to answer a distant family's question about their relative who have made in Galveston. So I'm just there a lot and people have started to recognize my car. Wow. We have to chase you down and say, wait a minute, this headstone, why are the beads there? For instance, I mentioned that before, so I'll prompt you on that because that's a sweet story and it's nice to think of people still, as I said, remembering it. So tell us briefly, why does this woman's grave have Mardi Gras beads on it? That's Elizabeth Percival, and um, she was an English immigrant. She's a very sweet woman, but she married a kind of scoundrel bartender in what was then a rowdy section called The Strand. And he had two daughters from a previous marriage, but he was very abusive to all of them. So Elizabeth eventually applied for a divorce, and it was granted, which was unheard of then, but everybody knew his reputation. So Elizabeth and the two stepdaughters, Florence and Jessie, moved out, and they started a boarding house and restaurant called the English Kitchen, and they became very popular. They had a good friend base. They were successful in business, and on the Strand, many of the older buildings have kind of what you would be familiar with in New Orleans with the wrought iron balconies off the front Mm -hmm. of the buildings. And Mardi Gras was coming. So on March 2nd, 1881, she invited all of her friends over to sit on the balcony of the boarding house. And they were watching the Mardi Gras parade, which went right by the English kitchen. But unfortunately, her husband was hiding in the crowd. And as he passed, he shot up and killed her in front of everybody and then just walked off. So people still leave Mardi Gras beads during Mardi Gras just to let her know that they still remember her. It's touching. It's nice. And you must have felt great being able to share her story because I imagine that rattled around in your head for years before you were able to publish it. Yes. She wasn't anybody famous. And a lot of the people in the book, some of them are quite famous. But a lot of the people in the book aren't famous. They aren't anyone that anyone knew other than a name on a gravestone. But when I, if you'll pardon the pun, got digging into history about them and found out about them in their lives, people started getting really attached to them, like Elizabeth, who nobody seemed to know anything about. But now people know who she is, and they leave her beads, and they ask about her and ask whatever happened to her stepdaughters. And it's really nice. Another one was the Alberti family, which is a tragedy. Unfortunately, they have a big grave site there because so many of them died together. That's another unique one. And it's 
touching and sad and tragic all at once. I mean, this is all the things that we want in history. We talk about it exactly like that. It's just that the history is written on stones instead of in a book or instead of online or in a film. So mention briefly about this family and why that catches your eye when you walk through this sort of giant block with all these names on it, very young names. It's a very large, probably four and a half feet high granite block with a lot of names on it. And you might just pass by it because it looks almost modern, although it isn't, but it has a lot of names. But if you stop long enough to glance at them, you realize a lot of the death dates are identical. And then you realize that the identical dates are all small children. And what it was was a mother who had lost a couple of children and her sister and went into a deep postpartum depression and ended up murdering all but two of her children. One of them survived the arsenic that she had given them, and one of the children hadn't heard the call to come down for the drink, so she survived. But she ended up killing all of her children and being sent off to an insane asylum, which three years later they declared she was fine to go home. And, of course, when she got home, she had realized what she'd done, and she also committed suicide the same way. So the entire family is buried together But when you think about it, it's odd that it's one of the only places you'll see where the murderess and her victims are buried in one plot together. And what year was that? That was, oh gosh, so that's a test. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. That's okay. It was, uh, I think it was in the 1870s or 1880s. So long before we would have had knowledge of something like postpartum depression, at least we wouldn't have called it by that name. I just wanted to make clear to people it's a long time ago as far as medicine goes. So... This is why it's something that is definitely history. It's a long time ago and it's a tragic story, but many of them are real lives and also there's art here. You were kind enough to sign my copy of Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries. Thank you for that. You wrote in there, hope you enjoy reading the stories behind the stones. Chapter five of that book is titled Stonemasons and Funeral Homes. Who are the artists behind all these stones, mausoleums, memorials, these statues that are there? Who are the artists? What kind of people do that to memorialize the dead? Well, Galveston's very lucky in that they have a lot of Native artists who lived on the island. There is a family by the name of Ott, O-T-T, who's actually in their fifth generation now of being stone carvers for the cemetery. So the grandfather of the family has walked me through and shown me some of his grandfather's work. It's pretty impressive, but they're just so talented and beautiful pieces. But beyond the local artisans, there were quite a few wealthy people at the time because Galveston was a very wealthy city, and they would hire artisans from Italy and France to come in and carve the sculptures for their grave sites or their family graves. Two of them who actually were Americanized, but there was the Italian-born Louis Amatez, and he carved General Bankhead Magruder's grave, which is amazing to look at. Pompeo Capini, who was also Italian, carved the Alamo Cenotaph, the Confederate monument on the state capitol grounds and Sam Houston's grave and some other famous sculptures. But he did some of the beautiful angels in our cemetery. So it's kind of like an outdoor art gallery if you take the time to stroll and really look at the artwork involved. My guest is Kathleen Macca, author of both Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries and Ghosts of Galveston. 
Her website is KathleenMacca.com. That's Kathleen with a K, M-A-C-A. And she's found online at Author Macca on Twitter or Facebook at Kathleen Shanahan Macca. The Houston Chronicle titled an article in 2013, Galveston ranks as one of the nation's most haunted places. So Kathleen will shift a little bit and ask, why here? We know you have a big, beautiful cemetery, but you tell us that there's only one ghost story that has people feeling a little bit jittery around this time of year. So it can't just be the alliteration in Ghosts of Galveston. What is it about the city itself that makes people think they hear something go bump in the night? Well, the alliteration of the title is just a happy accident. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Galveston is known as a very haunted island, thick with spirits. I think it has a lot to do with the island's history because of the terrible hurricanes and the Civil War and there were yellow fever epidemics. And there were so many tragedies in addition to all the good things that it's felt that there are many spirits and most islanders just accept the hauntings as part of their daily life. You can stop almost anybody on the street and say, do you have a ghost in your house? And they'll say, oh, Fred, and tell you the story of their family ghost. So <laughs> it's quite amusing, but it's fascinating at the same time. Fred has to be the least scary ghost name ever. Doesn't so it? it really helps. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. Fred, I don't know. Fred, stop shaking the plates. Fred, stop making the walls bleed. It's not exactly. <laughs> Do something instructive. <laughs> yeah. I really, Amityville Horror, that family probably would just stayed there. Well, we got a good mortgage rate. You know, we got the interest rate is low. We put like 20% down first time buyer. No sense running out in the middle of the night. Just get used to Fred, put an extra plate right, out. So, but <laughs> Put on your big girl panties. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I understand though. Uh, that makes sense. People like to sort of embrace it. And it must help with tourism too. It's a fun thing. It is a fun thing. Luckily, most of the hauntings that people talk about are very friendly or at least they'll ignore you kind of during their activity. There are only a couple of, that are seen as malevolent. So I think that's why people just take them so casually and accept them. There are ghost tours all over the island. There are some that are on the Strand, which is the old business district, which is heavily infested with spiritual activity. There are some of the cemetery. There are, there's one about the secret societies of Galveston, you know, the Masons and all the groups that people think are so spooky because they don't know that much about them. There are haunted hotels on the island that take great pride in their resident ghosts. It's a really fun thing. And I think that for people who are very serious about history and roll their eyes and think it's silly that people get so worked up in this, it's great that it helps preserve the history because you look at some of your pictures there and these beautiful old buildings, especially again in the climate and with hurricanes ripping through and the like and people always developing any oceanside resort town, it would be so easy to lose it. And yet when you get this kind of story, you know, nobody's going to knock down Lizzie Borden's house. So <laughs> it, it can help, right? Even though it's, it's sort of, you know, it's not something maybe that you're going to be teaching a, a Harvard class on. And it's maybe something that people wish to debunk and say, well, it's not really something serious. It can play a role here in preserving real island history. It actually can. I think it gives people that wouldn't normally be interested in history per se it kind of gives them a niggling to find out more about the historical background of things. If, if they are interested in ghosts, but not history, it kind of lures them in at the same time. But I think communities 
folklore, whether or not you believe in it, is an important part of each community's history, and it all ties in. I know that when I was gathering the stories for Ghosts of Galveston, I ended up with over 90 stories to start with, and I knew I had to narrow it down some way, and since I normally write about pretty strictly history topics, I thought, okay, number one, wherever the place is, it still has to exist in some form so people could visit it and see what it is. And number two, I have to only include stories that there's a historical basis for. I can either find a newspaper account of the event that they're saying these hauntings come from, or I can find the person's death certificate or you know, some kind of city records or whatever. So I actually have documentation for the events that back up the ones that I used in this, the book. And I still ended up with over 40. So they definitely tie into history. And the book has a lot of history interwoven with the sightings. That has to be because you are a genealogist, as my wife is. And she'll always say, well, you can't guarantee that or this. You have to find some sources. You have to track it down and make sure that you're right. So Again, I want people to understand that whether they feel like picking up Ghosts of Galveston or Galveston's Broadway cemeteries, this is not sort of some gypsy's charlatan there with a folding table at the state fair. (laughs) The history part of it is what you're taking seriously. It is. It is. And Galveston's Broadway cemeteries was just a way to share my love for cemeteries, but also to share a lot of the history of Galveston. And I've had so many people approach me that are excited now about the cemeteries and learning more about them because they would say, oh, I just passed by it for years, but I never went in until I knew some of these stories and I had to go check them out myself, which made me feel really good. You mentioned the Strand Historic District, the hurricanes that we spoke about, two massive ones in 1900 and 1915. And this is back before we started naming weather, by the way, that didn't start till much, much later. They devastate the city. They kill a lot of people. Those are incredible stories in their own right. But out of this, in a way of maybe dealing with it, we get an interesting ghost story. It's almost a way of memorializing this heroic teacher. Share her story about roaming the Strand and tell us a little bit about what the Strand is exactly for those of us who've never been there. Well, the Strand is a wonderful section of the island. It's the old business district and it predates the Civil War. They're beautiful buildings. Some of them have the wrought iron balconies. The architecture is just amazing. Um, Some of the buildings are by architects like Nicholas Clayton, who we're very proud of on the island. And the 1900 storm still stands as the nation's worst disaster, if you can imagine that. Think about what damage you have seen in your lifetime from Katrina on the news. But Galveston lost over 6,000 lives. And it seems like every time they do an in-depth study, they want to bump up that number because we'll never know exactly how many lives. But to lose that many people in the majority of the buildings, but they rebuilt and stayed there and reestablished the city, which shows the spirit of the city. But the teacher that you're talking about came about as part of the storm itself, where a lot of people went to the buildings on the Strand because they were large brick buildings during the storm to seek refuge from the high waters. And she was in one of the buildings on a corner, and the floodwaters were up to the third floor. And she balanced on the ledge of the floor and grabbed people out of the floodwaters. 
and some of them were alive and some of them were already deceased. So the people in the building would stack the deceased on one side and those who were still living on the other side. And she stayed in the building for three days trying to nurse those who were injured back to health and ended up being ill herself and passing away in the building. And her spirit is one of the ones that they say is still in the building that's cited very often. So it's sad, but her heroism is kind of acknowledged in the story that's passed down. And it helps preserve the building. It helps preserve the area and the feeling. And it's great. I mean, I love this period as people who listen regularly know. So, you know, I'd love to be able to go back in time and I don't necessarily want a bunch of banks everywhere. For one thing, I'm confused because I don't know who goes to banks so much anymore. We have so much online, but (laughs) also those buildings tend to be so unattractive and you can't put anything in there if the bank leaves, right? You're not going to suddenly put a pizza place in a bank. Whereas in the past, we had those beautiful old buildings that you could turn into a restaurant and it would still say bank over the door, right? And it Mm -hmm. would be really add character. They're just unpleasing. And I think anything that gets you to save a great old building is a wonderful thing. I'm with you on that. Speaking of the buildings and the looks of Galveston, you have so many pictures and people can follow you online and see a lot of these. I've previously said on the show many times that editing is always a challenge for an author. One of my sister-in-laws is a hairstylist and she would always say, it's the hair I leave on that matters. You know, don't worry about (laughs) seeing a big pile next to the chair, right? So Describe here how you chose the pictures in your books and which one of them to leave out, and also the covers of both books. I have Ghosts of Galveston right here. That's a wonderful building. Really does look intimidating a little bit. Looks like there's good parking there. That's about the the least spooky thing I guess (laughs) I could say. for. And then the other one is one of the headstones from Galveston's Broadway Cemetery. So talk about how you pick those images out of all the others you have in what's clearly a large archive. Um, I am very blessed to work with the Galveston, Texas History Center when I do research projects. They're a wonderful place to, um, they're a resource of history of the island. And a lot of the images that I got for the cemetery book were from the archives there. And I have also been lucky enough to have contact with families who've shared their family photos of these places and allowed me to use them in the book. So I think that's particularly exciting because a lot of them aren't seen anywhere else because they've just been in a family album somewhere, sometimes not even in Texas anymore. But you're right, the pictures are a big challenge. In the cemetery book, although I did want to show some of the beautiful markers, I wanted to show as many faces as possible of the people who rest there because I wanted to show that they were real people. So not only tell their stories, but I wanted to put a face with their story. Ghosts of Galveston, I more wanted to, you know, show what buildings they were. So if they looked at the picture, they would know, oh, wait a minute, I pass by that one every day. I didn't know that story about it. But again, I also was blessed to have people share their family photos. The cover of the Ghosts of Galveston is actually the Hotel Galvez, which is right on the seawall. It's a gorgeous hotel that was built in 1911 and it actually doesn't look this spooky in person (laughs) the history press did an amazing job of editing the picture so there's a big spooky moon behind it and all craggly branches in front but if you look beyond them you can probably see that there's a line of elegant palm trees leading up to the portico 
it's a beautiful hotel, but it is one of the places that's very proud of its ghost. So it was kind of iconic, and I thought it should have the cover position on the Ghosts of Galveston. I hope they're stocking it in the gift shop. They are. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. They actually even have an app. And even if you can't come down and visit, you should download it. It's the Hotel Galvez, but they have a free app that you can download of a tour of the hotel and then a ghost tour of the hotel that tells some of the stories. And they're really fun. And the cover for Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries. How did you come across that picture? That was a really tough one. The one that we had it narrowed down to was a gentleman called Uncle Newton, who used to be the grave digger. And it's a fabulous shot. It's now one of the center pictures in the book. But we were afraid that um, since he was digging a grave (laughs) in the picture, it might off-put some people. So the cover shot is actually one of my photos. But it shows that during May, when the wildflowers are allowed to take over the cemeteries, and it's a sea of yellow for the two-block area over the cemeteries. It's a beautiful time to visit, but it kind of shows that there are lots of statues and palm trees and flowers, and I thought it gave a better feel for what people would see if they came there. Okay, I have one final question for you before we dump the last shovel full of dirt on the grave. I obviously have no problem with cemetery puns. I watched a lot of the (laughs) Munsters and Adams family and love to walk through a cemetery myself. I'm going to suggest everybody listening to you turn off their lights here. We are going to upload this on Halloween. And I want to ask you to make one final spooky pitch for picking up the ghosts of Galveston. Give us one of those first stories that when you were a kid and you were there with your grandfather or just around that era, made your hair stand on edge about walking the streets of Galveston. Or since you said we're talking a Casper kind of neighborhood here with friendly ghosts, one of those that made you sort of squint when you're a kid, you know, you're hoping to see something out there that's a little bit spooky. So have at it for that last question. (laughs) Okay. Probably one of the spookier haunted of Galveston is the story of William Watson and he came into the port of Galveston on a ship on September 1st of 1900 it was actually just the week before the great storm and he was 32 and he was the first assistant engineer and he came from Brooklyn he put on his best coat and trousers and went into town to explore some of the bars along the strand and the last time he was spotted he was kind of weaving his way back down the strand toward the ship and then no one ever saw him again but when a train came through town about three o'clock in the morning they saw something on the track and although they tried to stop they couldn't in time so they got off the train and walked back and it was a beheaded body who had obviously been beheaded several hours before they just hit it again so they took the train back to the station which was only a couple blocks away and called the police and the police looked everywhere and couldn't find the head next to the body so they followed the tracks back to the station and the head was actually lodged underneath one of the trains that had originally hit it and when the train had stopped the head rolled out and he still had his derby hat in place on his head and the police reports actually confirm that so i thought that was kind of creepy and william still roams the tracks looking for his way back to his ship wow i thought you were gonna say he was looking for the hat but i guess he had that he still had it (laughs) (laughs) well hat was a very important accoutrement no man back then will be seen without it dead or alive yeah wow (laughs) that's that's some dedication to haberdashery that's a great (laughs) great endorsement (laughs) 
Well, Kathleen Macca, genealogist, author, and the lady behind these two great books we've talked about today, Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries and Ghosts of Galveston, thank you for spending some time with us, and thank you for the special way you remember those who passed on in this unique Texas town, the Oleander City. We don't want to make light of death, but I just love to laugh at things like this because I think that's great. When I go, I always say I'd love to have an obituary that reads Looney Tune Fan Hit and Head by Anvil. You know, we've all got to go, so it might as well be a way that people can laugh about and enjoy and remember you somehow when you go. So best of luck with both books where people can find many, many more stories like these. Absolutely. And happy Halloween. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Jane. Again, the books are Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries and Ghosts of Galveston. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copies at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. Sort of like trick-or-treating, come to think of it. Once again, thanks to Kathleen Macca for joining us and for having some ghostly fun mixed with serious history on this Halloween. Visit her online at KathleenMacca.com, at AuthorMacca on Twitter, again that's M-A-C-A, or on the Facebook page, Author Kathleen Shanahan Macca. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this super spooky installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a happy Halloween. Still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same on the east. Sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.